Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. Um, first, let me apologize for not releasing a podcast uh, earlier this week. Um, it is usually my intention to do it on Monday, no later than Tuesday to publish a podcast. Uh, but a couple of things happened. One, I noticed, well, you know, my, my real job, uh, I had to make some adjustments. So it kind of curtailed my time. But two, I also kind of noticed there was a drop in people listening to the podcast, especially the last one. And so I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I need to take a break or whatever. But then something happened over the weekend and I just kept reflecting on it, reflecting on it. And it made me decide, yeah, I'm going to push through. And yeah, it's going to be a little late getting out. Uh, but I got to do it. I've got to do what I can do to continue to be a voice out here. And I'm not the only voice. I am, I'm maybe not the best voice, but I am a voice and I am going to use that voice to continue to bring about hopefully some inspiration. So hopefully some education, hopefully some motivation for you to get with others to push and fight for what we have in the United States. 
because it's even getting to a point now where it's beyond democracy. I, as a political person, somebody that cares about the body politic in America and the integrity of it, because that's really the fairest shot we have as black people in this country. There's a lot of black folks that don't feel that way. I'll deal with that a little later if I remember to get to them. But there's another element to it too. Because you can't talk about American politics without American capitalism. When Dr. King did that in 1968, an assassin's bullet found him. Right? Robert Kennedy ran on a presidential platform in 1968 to address those issues politically. An assassin's bullet found him. Well, Malcolm X had evolved from just the member of the Nation of Islam to a member of the Islamic community and became more holistic in trying to tie Africans from all over the world to fight neocolonialism, which was really in its infant stage since it was still 20 years after World War II. He found an assassin's when Assassin's Bullet, I should say, fall, fall, fell, found him, right? So, you know, we live in a day and age now where there's a lot of us out here. I'm sure there's enough ammo to take us out, but I don't think, you know, people perceive us as a threat because... We don't have millions of people following us, right? But we do have a few. And I always believe in the power of 10. I had a colleague who was in a tough reelection fight with a friend of mine. I had actually coached her son in football. And it looked like she was going to pull off the upset and beat an incumbent legislator. And he turned around, him and his wife, picked out 10 friends each and wrote them a letter asking the people to support him and for those people to write 10 of their friends to do the same thing. Well, he got reelected. Because that power of 10 grew exponentially. And it translated into thousands of votes. And he won. So I believe that, you know, and from my Christian teaching that where two or three are gathered, there are many. Because those two or three could spread the word. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he gave it to 12 people. And now over a billion people profess to be Christians. 
there's power in numbers. But there's power in small numbers as well. And it makes a difference if those people go out and tell other folks not only to listen to a particular podcast, but to take action when needed. And so I just really wanted to kind of start off with that tone as to, you know, because that's really kind of the gist. And I'm going to be covering a lot of things, but there's there's a tie-in with all of that. But one of the events that took place happened over the weekend. And I want to read something that he used to recite early on, what really kind of made him famous. It was a poem, and the credit to the poem goes to a minister here in Atlanta. Uh, I, I think it was part of a sermon at the Wheat Street Baptist Church, which is in downtown Atlanta. And it goes, I am somebody. I am somebody. I may be poor, but I am somebody. I may be young, but I am somebody. I may be on welfare, but I am somebody. I may be small, but I am somebody. I may have made mistakes, but I am somebody. My clothes are different. My face is different. My hair is different, but I am somebody. I am black, brown, or white. I speak a different language, but I must be respected, protected, never rejected. I am God's child. Now, for those of you of a certain age, you know who said that. For those who are younger, those were the words from the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Sr. Over the weekend, Reverend Jackson um, stepped down as being the president of the organization he founded, Rainbow Push which initially started as Operation Breadbasket, broke away from the SCLC and became People United to Save Humanity. And then Operation Push and then the Rainbow Push Coalition after his two, two runs for President of the United States. And uh, I've mentioned several times before, I was fortunate enough to be part of the push excel program that's what it was called i may not have called it by name where that was a deliberate effort from operation push at the time to reach out and tap into 
young black leaders. So, you know, my encounters with Reverend Jackson were always positive. I know he did some things that people frowned upon, including me. But I remember when he was running for president, he said, not a perfect servant, I'm a public servant. And outside of the other mantra, whereas a politician thinks of the next election, but a statesman thinks of the next generation, that was my second most important mantra to remember. Because we're flawed people trying to get better, uh, but we still have a heart to serve. And the efforts that he did, more so than any other African-American who ran for president of the United States, opened the door for the reality of a Barack Obama some 20 years later. So, and it made John F. Kennedy a prophet, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy, excuse me, a prophet, because in 1968, he said 40 years from now, there'll be an African-American president. And that happened. So, you know, but Reverend Jackson would come to Jackson State. Uh, I had a privilege of being on program with him. I've had the privilege of having dinner with him, interacting with him. I knew his son, Jesse Jr., more so because he was kind of, you know, we were the same age. Now his brother is in Congress. His daughter-in-law uh, and, and you know the saga between Jesse Jr. and his his wife, what happened to them. And that was a classic case of good people making a terrible mistake, right? They didn't kill anybody. They didn't really hurt anybody, but it was still a ter- terrible mistake as far as integrity and trust, Right? But his legacy will be young people like me, people that are in my age group that were impacted by him, who were inspired by him. When we came of age, he even drew in the nation of Islam, which had been apolitical all these years and got them engaged in the political process, registering people to vote, taking people to the polls. And so now he's stepping down. And when you look as time is always the equalizer, as well as the ultimate ending, death. 
we knew that these moments would happen and that the leaders that we grew up admiring are getting old or have gone on to another realm. And we have to pick up the mantle. Some of us have done it through politics. Some of us have done it through ministry. Some of us have done it through activism. And just some of us have done it by just being good parents to our children, right? Being successful either in our own business or in the businesses that we work at. So he, he is from a political standpoint, that embodiment of excellence, that embodiment of inspiration that we look toward in leadership. And, you know, some people get caught up in the, in the white folks, and I, and I said it like that, uh, dismissal, you know, when things were happening in the black community, he was one of the main people that would show up and speak and all that. And, you know, people try to play him as a hustler and all that kind of stuff. You know, but there's a brother that was captured in Syria that doesn't think he's a hustler. He went over and got him. Right. And that man, I I don't know whatever happened to that young man, but he sure he lived a much better life than he would have had Reverend Jackson not intervened. And one of my favorite stories about him was when I was getting started in politics. uh, And. I was working for a particular candidate and he was in a runoff for a congressional seat and his opponent had come out with a commercial where it would give the appearance that Reverend Jackson had endorsed him. So we were trying to figure out how we could combat that. And so the guy who finished in third place basically had me come to his law office And it was late at night. And the significance of that night was the reason why it was so late was because it was the night of the Michigan caucus in 1988. And Reverend Jackson had won it. And we got a hold to him. Now, mind you, there were no cell phones back then. We got a hold to him. And the attorney who was friends with Reverend Jackson, basically, you know, told him I was there and who I was representing and told him the situation. Well, Reverend Jackson was not happy. And he was hoarse because, he, you know, he'd been campaigning and he gave a rousing victory speech and all that. So he was tired. He was hoarse. But you could tell that he was not pleased. And so he made a commitment 
to do an actual commercial with him for my candidate, the candidate I was working for, and actually endorse him. And sure enough, the next day at the recording studio, he called in and uh, he did the commercial and my candidate won, right? So, you know, because in 1988, he was, as young folks will say now, he was a brand. And he understood that. And that's why when I, you know, I used to hear people saying, well, he's trying to pimp poverty and all this kind of stuff. It was like, y'all don't, y'all don't know this brother. Y'all really don't. I mean, you know, he was, he was good at stuff. He was like a, he was student body president and the star quarterback at his college. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's that kind of dude, you know? And, and Dr. King had embraced him and had him in the inner circle. And he was looking to him to address the issues in the cities that he got, he became aware of in 66 after the victories with civil rights and voting rights. And Dr. King started, and that was part of his effort to start focusing in on economics. So we're losing yet another icon. And I hope that he remains in good enough health that he can enjoy some of the retirement and uh, get some rest that's well-deserved for the work that he did. But as a reminder, just like John Lewis's death and Joseph Lowry and James Orange and all these other icons that have gone on, who I was very fortunate enough to be in their presence, James Bevel, all these guys, right? That it's time for us. And I mean, my generation, the generation after us, the generation after them to step up. And we're seeing it in bits and pieces. We're, you know, 2020 was a revelatory year and watching the transition of leadership. But we, that was coming. 2014 stirred it up a little bit, right? And I believe 2024 is really going to be a crowning moment. 60 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act you're going to see a movement that will define where we are. But right now in 2023, so we're only six months away 
from what I am predicting. You're seeing this hornet's nest of activity. And, and we're being exposed to things that are happening, not only in our community, but all over the country and really all over the planet. I call it a political climate change. You know, we're dealing with the effects of real climate change, right? We just had the hottest June in the history of the planet. We're probably going to have the hottest July in the history of the planet. Uh, people, you know, it's like you've, you've got these fires in these Canadian forests that are not only doing damage in that country itself, but it's wrecking havoc on our air quality here in the United States. We actually are having air quality alerts on a daily basis, right? But while we're going through this scientific climate change, there's also a political climate change that's happening. And it goes back to the conversation we had about changing demographics, right? And it's going into conversations that we've been having about changing economics. As I'm recording this, Hollywood is on strike, except for the directors, because the directors worked out some kind of deal a few years ago. So whether people think it was bad or good, they're, they're under their current agreement. But the actors and the writers are on strike. Now, for those of you folks who love movies and TV shows and all that stuff, it's going to be a bummer for a minute. You know, if it hasn't already been produced and ready for distribution, not going to see any new stuff for a minute. But for your slight inconvenience, <laughs> There's a cause that's being fought. And now, excuse me, the drivers of UPS are getting ready to go on strike. And they haven't been on strike since 97, 98, I think. I think it was 98. Because I was working for UPS part-time when the last strike happened. And I remember those guys were calling us and asking us to cross the picket line and come on in. And we were like, dude, we signed Teamster cards when we first day on the job. We're members. Now, we may not be out there marching with everybody else, but we ain't crossing that line, right? And it's estimated that every day that the UPS workers go on strike, could impact the economy by $4 billion a day. 
you know. And, you know, eventually it's going to come to a head, right? They're going to sit down at the table eventually, but we don't know how long because just last year, UPS had a profit. I'm not talking about revenue. Had a profit of $100 billion. So they're kind of in a mindset, yeah, we'll go into the long game, right? But this is part of the awakening that is happening because people are tired of being neglected. People are tired of not being protected. People are tired of being disrespected. It doesn't matter if it's your favorite Hollywood actor or that guy in that hot brown UPS truck trying to get your package to you, right? And, and you know, we, we've been having conversations. People are like, well, Amazon's going to make a killing and yada, yada, yada and all that stuff. Yeah, that's, you know, before Amazon was in the game, it was FedEx. And, you know, that's what they were saying back in the 90s. Oh, FedEx is going to make a killing, man. Everybody's going to be using them. FedEx doesn't have the capacity to take on what UPS will sit down. Amazon doesn't have the capacity. Because if they did, then every package you got from Amazon would come from an Amazon truck. They're trying, but the reality is they can't. Because you got a guy like Jeff Bezos sitting on $152 billion. He's not even directly running the company anymore, from what I understand. But, you know, he's making money regardless. So there's no pressure on him to pull some of his money to say, okay, let's expand the business. He's at $152 billion. It'll take him 83 years to spend $1 billion of that. <laughs> you know, and whatever he spends today, he'll make it back. So, you know, it's it's a it's a interesting situation, right? But it leads into the bigger discussion about us getting more engaged in all facets, politics and economics. Because I'm a, I'm a, in the second half, I'm going to talk about what's, what's happening economically that is stirring political fires, right? And if you know me, you know that my mantra is politics can dictate economics. We have a political party who likes, well, we have a political system that likes to do it in reverse and let the economics control the politics. But the reality is 
the politics in America are supposed to control the economics. And I'll dive into that and I'll also make the case why we do capitalism wrong. We can catch y'all on the other side. And we are back. So, political climate change, right? That's where we are. Because people are tired of being disrespected. People are tired of their needs being neglected. People are tired of feeling unprotected, right? And it seems as though that we are in a mindset in politics by elected leaders to take it as far as they can go. And we've talked about book bans. We've talked about discounting black history or outlawing it even. Uh, we've talked about uh, discrimination coming back, but it's, it's, it's even worse than that in the mindset of these people that we are dealing with right now. And, and I want to say this, and, and people that push this agenda can take it how they want to. And I think, you know, that people have, there are some that I believe have good intentions and there should be some concerns about these things, like our health, for example. You know, I, 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 I'm really bothered by black leaders who are focusing on the vaccines, right? It's something that 85% of all Americans, not just black folks, 85% of all Americans have taken at least one vaccine shot, right? Now, you know, we've, we're hearing people make these claims about cancer and other health effects that's happening. I'm not here to really totally discount that. But the bigger issue is can, even if we find these things, can we treat them? Can we have the healthcare infrastructure to combat another pandemic? 
or after effects of efforts to stop the pandemic or control it or get it just get it out of pandemic status right you know I think that our focus needs to be on the bigger picture than dealing with the minutia. And I, and I really just feel uncomfortable with black folks embracing ignorant white folks stuff. I just do, or crazy white folks stuff. Like I talked about Robert F. Kennedy, the young man who is his namesake is obsessed with all these conspiracy theories about what's going on and all that stuff. And, and, you know, just to be honest with you and be frank, most conspiracy theories start with a foundation of truth. But what happens is that before people get facts to build on the foundation of truth, they run with ideas or they'll come to their own conclusions based on how they interpret the foundation that's why the old folks used to say a little bit of knowledge is dangerous in some folks hands because they'll take a bit of information and run wild with it instead of doing the detailed analysis to make it so and most of the people who are doing all this stuff are not and a lot of the people who are saying, oh, well, this vaccine, these are people that missed out on the money. Right? And these are people who are just as, you know, some folks are upset about the eugenics piece. These are people who are just as insidious as the eugenicists. And they may be eugenicists in a sense. But one of the things that bothered me about this particular pandemic was how it impacted our people. And so now that our people responded in a way to end a pandemic, now we're being told that we made a mistake without legitimate scientific fact. Let me give you a fact. So a teenage boy was working in a chicken factory in Mississippi last week. He was working at night because he goes to school during the day. Um, he died cleaning one of the machines at the chicken factory. Obviously, one of the machines he either accidentally turned on or was on. Don't know how it happened, but he basically got mangled in the machine. Now, he's under the age of 16, right? And even at 16, 
he's still too young to be working at a factory, according to federal law. Because there used to be a time in the United States before unions, <laughs> right, where children were working in textile mills and other factories. And they were being maimed, injured, or killed in these factories, in these coal mines even, right? And it was because of the efforts of organized labor that the United States government outlawed that practice. But now we have people. We have people who say that they are pro-life and they're anti-abortion, right? But these same people are passing laws saying that a 14-year-old can serve you alcohol at a bar. Now, you have to be 21 to drink it, but a 14-year-old can sell it to you. There are some states, there's literally 19 states that either have passed or entertaining legislation to do that. Right? The most notorious is Iowa. They were like the first state to do it. Right? The woman who signed the illegal, unconstitutional, and, and we say unconstitutional because the Supreme Court, the, the court, the federal courts have already said it was unconstitutional, and then they came back and it went into special session and passed the same bill again. Right? That's a fact. That we are going into a time where child labor is being pushed, right? So it's okay for Harvard or North Carolina or uh, Texas or any of these universities to stop admitting black kids to college because it's like, we need them in the factories, right? And if we can arrest them, then we can work in the prisons. And now that the prison system is overcrowded, then it's like, okay, well now we'll get them ankle bracelets, right? So all they'll do is go to work and go home. Maybe we'll allow them to shop for food. This is the Pullman concept all over again, where we just want a society that goes to work, shops where they work, live where they work, eat where they work, sleep where they work. And I, and I, I, I don't know how else to tell you, but if you go to the Pullman district now, the houses that were built are still there, but the Pullman company is not. It failed. They even had their own money, right? Go to the south side of Chicago. They'll tell you the story, right? I even challenged a secretary of education, a superintendent of education from Mississippi. He was incoming, and he kept talking about, oh, we're just going to try to get these kids so they can get good jobs and all this stuff. And I was like, 
why the hell are you doing it? I said, we've, we've done this industrial educational concept, you know, and we get it. Some people are not meant to be teachers or liberal arts majors or scientists or whatever. Okay. We know we need people in that sector, right? In the blue collar sector. There are some people that excel at that. We get that because we want to build stuff, right? We need welders. We need brick masons. We need people. But we do kind of want them to maybe go to a community college where they can learn that trade or be old enough to go to a union trade school and learn how to do it and learn their rights as far as working goes as well. Right? We we need that. And we need to have immigrants because even some folks, right? They'll they'll hang out on the corner and get drunk before they'll go into a farm to pick strawberries. So we need immigrants who are willing to do that work. But if we are passing laws that basically say, if you show up, if you bring an immigrant into my state, I'm going to arrest you and deport that immigrant. That's going to deter some folks, right? And we've seen numbers going down, but that's because of policy laws that have been implemented to streamline the process to get more people documented into the United States rather than just everybody just coming in, right? Because we do need documentation. Nobody's denying that. We do need to have a process to make it go better but you know bureaucracy anyway underfunded bureaucracy by the way but anyway back to child labor so now we we want our kids to live but we also want them to be working at a time that they should be learning right now, I got my first job at 16. I was bagging groceries. I wasn't working at a factory in Chicago. It's not a grocery store. You know? And we were unionized, <laughs> even as bag boys. So, you know, we got good pay for what we did. And yeah, okay, they take out $15 for union dues? Cool. You know what happened with that $15 a paycheck that I was getting? When I was a sophomore in college, had not worked at that Jewels for years, right? At least a couple of years. I got a $2,000 check because my union fought for my rights. And I got $2,000 and $2,000 to a college student in one pop. That's, that's like hitting the lotto at least back then. So (laughs) 
you can't tell me anything bad about unions. I mean, my mom was in the union. My dad was in the union. You can't tell me anything bad about unions. If it wasn't for unions, I wouldn't have had the lifestyle that I had growing up. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor or broke. As people say, there's a difference, right? We didn't, we were neither one of those. Did we have challenges? Of course. That's why I started working to make sure that I had the money to do what I wanted to do my last two or three years in high school, right? But, yeah. But it wasn't like I had to or state law mandated that I did, right? So, you know, and then we got a Supreme Court that is denying rights to women that is threatening to deny rights for the LGBTQ community and definitely wants to make sure that all the gains we made in fighting for education access is shut down, right? Because (laughs) one black person has a taste of disdain in his mouth because of the opportunity that was given to him, right? To go along with the chorus of white folks that hate the fact that any of us was in college with them at some of these elite schools, right? So, but the same Supreme Court said that people still need to have representation. But now we've got the state legislators who lost that case basically saying, screw you. We're going to do what we want to do anyway, just like the governor in Iowa who said, screw you about the six-week ban being unconstitutional. We're going to do what we want to do, right? We got people in a state that where woke goes to die that may be the largest, could be the largest homeless population in the United States because insurance companies are not insuring their homes. And it's not just because of climate change. It's because of grift. And then we have an unfortunate circumstance where we had a sister who I put on my social media platforms that went missing. And now she's being compared to Jesse Smollett saying the police intimated that she made it up. And yet one third of all the missing women, not just people, women, in the United States are black women. And their cases are four times likely to be cold cases than white women. 
So now what's getting ready to happen, the immediate reaction is, well, we can go back to ignoring black women being missing because this one may have fabricated her story. And if she did, that brings up a whole other issue about mental health, right? While people are harping about vaccines, none of these people are talking about depression. None of these people are talking about suicide rates. None of these people are talking about anxiety. None of these people are talking about trauma. Not just trauma for veterans that went to war, but trauma for children that live in urban areas that are dealing with violence and drugs and poverty on a day-to-day basis. And unfortunately, their answer to their mental crisis is to inflict more trauma on their peers and their community. That's, and and we're not talking about every person, but all it takes is several to create that kind of climate, create that kind of chaos. We only had one guy serve one term as president and look at the chaos that that individual has caused that we are dealing with and will be dealing with for generations. Look what his election has unleashed on this nation that felt not just within the boundaries of this nation, but in the world felt that maybe we as Americans were turning the corner. And we're really about to set an example about human rights and human achievement and human advancement, societal advancement even. And one election with one psycho person talk about mental illness has derailed all that. And we have black people who want reparations. We have black people who want equal rights. We want black people to that that want our contributions to the the development of this nation to be recognized. But when you ask them, are you voting? No. The system is rigged. There's our voices can't be heard. And even if we do, if this person doesn't have a position on our single issue, then screw the whole process. Right? And that's well and good. If that's what you want to do. But the reality is, is that the more that you disengage, the more you're going to be neglected, the more you're going to be disrespected, and the more you're going to be unprotected.
And the people that are using their economic power to dictate the politics are relying on you to continue to have that attitude. And they don't care about boundaries. They don't care about law. In Los Angeles, the aforementioned strike, at one studio, the picketers don't feel it's safe to picket there. Why? Because the company, I think it was NBC Universal, decided that the trees that the protesters were gathering under in, in the space that is allowed by city ordinance to for them to protest. Because, you know, when you do protests and pickets and all that stuff, you have to get permits and, you know, you have to be, you can't block entrances and all that stuff. It's not like the good old days of strikes where you'd be right there at the gate and harassing the people crossing the line. All that stuff. You can't do that anymore, right? Law and order. So even in the safe space, what this company did is literally cut the leaves off the trees in the hottest June and July on Earth <laughs> in the history of the planet. They cut the trees, the leaves off the trees so they wouldn't have shade to stand and protest. And the city's like, I don't think you can do that. And they're like, we do it all the time. We do it once a year. We just chose to do it this time. This is how ruthless these people are. This is the type of long game they're willing to play. And if you don't want to engage by voting, they win. If you don't vote, then those legislatures in Alabama and Louisiana will feel that they have the right to, to defy the Constitution, similar to what they did in 1861, right? Or even 1865, when they lied so they could get back in the Union. Right. And by 1890, they'd all passed laws to countermand or try to get around what the U.S. Constitution said they had to do. Right. This is what going back to the old days means to people in power. So what we have to get out of the mindset is getting out the people in power and giving the people back the power, right? That's where our mindset and that's where leaders like Reverend Jackson and John Lewis and James Orange and Joseph Lowry and Dr. King and Malcolm X and mega Evers that we hold in, in, in high regard but when we disengage, we disrespect them, even in their death or in their retirement. 
So I don't really value people who say they want to do X, Y, and Z and they want to change the world, but they're not willing to, as this one podcaster stresses, to be exceptional, right? It's one thing to be good. It's one thing to be excellent. It's a whole nother level to be exceptional. And in this day and age, in the battle that we are fighting to make sure that every American, not just black Americans, not just white Americans, not just Latino Americans, not just Asian Americans, every American, not just indigenous Native American people, every American, doesn't matter your orientation, doesn't matter your identity, doesn't matter your economic status. Every American needs to be protected. They need to have that power. They need to have that right. They need to live a lifestyle that is comfortable. All these people that profess to be Christians, right, and and use Christianity in politics, what the Bible says that we are to live and to live abundantly. But when you do capitalism wrong, right? You go to Mexico. That's all you got to do is go to Mexico and watch the fact that doctors, lawyers, nurses, teachers, scientists, everybody is in a union. Everybody. It's not a union state here or there. It's a union nation. If you go to France, it's a union nation. These people are rioting in the streets because the capitalists in France say, well, let's go back to a five-day work week. They're like, BS. That's not happening. Because you're getting the productivity that you need to make your money with us working four days. Next, you'll be talking about ending our health care. And you look at places like Britain and Canada, right above us, where citizens can go to the health care, the health center, can go to the hospital and not worry about being in debt. They can afford to be sick because their government prioritizes health care as a right. And they do capitalism. And everybody's saying, oh, well, we don't want socialism here. We don't want all that. What we don't want here is authoritarianism. What we don't want here is totalitarianism. That's what we don't want. That's what we don't need. Because if you give one power, one person, all the power, then anybody that that person deems as an enemy will be exterminated. Not hidden, not pushed aside, exterminated. History has proven this to us. And yet, here we are in the United States, a country who our grandfathers and some great-grandfathers literally went across two oceans to stop 
two a burgeoning totalitarian empire that was based on fascism and an ancient empire that was seeking world dominance and world contrition. We called those people the greatest generation of Americans. And yet some of them now think that American fascism might be okay. because of the fear that's been put into them. The lie that's been told to them. That it's like your economic struggle is tied into all these other people who ain't white. As opposed to reality that the real enemy is the one telling you that lie. Interesting fact came up on social media. Said $200 billion could solve the homeless problem in the United States. $200 billion. Now, federal government gets over $3 trillion, right, in revenue. So it seems like the government would have a large enough wallet to do that. But let's just say the government is still more focused on this constitutional obligation for defense and all these other things. There are 7,700 billionaires in the United States. 7,700 billionaires in the United States. Is each one of them contributed $27 million? Say we're putting that money aside to deal with homelessness. There's your $200 billion. And some change. If each billionaire in the United States committed $27 million to fight homelessness, we could end it. Do you know how embarrassing it is to go to Washington, D.C., and go where the office, the Department of Veteran Affairs is set up and look at the park across the street and see all these homeless veterans like sleeping in the park right across the street. Do you know how embarrassing that is? Obviously not embarrassing enough to the people that are in Washington serving in the United States Congress, even in the White House. And this is not just the current group. This has been going on for years. Decades. But I think it's embarrassing. And I think it, something should be done about it. I don't think anybody who served our country should be homeless or jobless or not given adequate health care. But then I believe every American shouldn't be homeless, jobless, and not have adequate health care, regardless of how God made you, right? So, let me just say this in closing. 
in this era now of this political climate change, it's up to us. It's up to us. We have to be focused. We can go down rabbit trails if we want to, but that strategy hasn't worked too well for us over the last decade. We need to be laser focused on making our communities safer, healthier, and economically stable. Just because they redlined us in the district doesn't mean that the only way we can make it better is if it's gentrified so that other folks can move into our old homes. But without political power, those changes can happen. We have to be committed. We have to step up now. And not just when somebody gets killed, but every day. Every day. And if that turns you off, okay. If you want to just wallow in despair and say, woe with us and there's no way out, that's on you. But that just makes it harder for those of us who are committed to a better society to achieve what we want to achieve for you and everybody else. You can bail out. You can not vote. You can decide to turn to crime. But the reality is, is that until you engage, until you challenge the powers that be, until you decide that you are somebody that deserves to be protected, that deserves to be respected, that does not need to be neglected, your struggles will continue. Until next time.